So we are finishing up our studies on these verses, chapter 5, verse 7 through 11. And like I said in, during the call of confession, not call of during the prayer of confession, Christian life is, at its core, it's, it's a very simple yet incredibly complex dynamic, what a Christian life is. But Christian life, if you strip it down to its core, it's about our ability to see Jesus Christ as Lord. Once again, this is, if this is us, to be blind, to be spiritually blind, to be in sin means this is us and this is all we know and this is all we, this is all we feel and this is what our life is. Us, how we think, how we feel, what, I, what we desire. This is man in its spiritually darkened place. But when the Lord saves us, he shows us Christ. And we begin to see Christ in, his, in our everyday life. Not visibly, of course. Seeing Christ means we get to know him through our minds. We get to, we get to experience him in our personal lives. That even though we may not see him, as Hebrew says, we love him. Even though we may not see him, we are certain that he's there. Right? So seeing it means through our minds we know that he's real, and we, we, and, we, and we realize that we are in his presence in our daily lives. Christianity is taking this person who didn't know that it was a Christ and began to realize that there is Jesus Christ. Sanctification, I think, is as you live your life, Christ becomes more and more visible in your everyday life. Once you didn't know him, you couldn't see him. Now you see him. And the more you journey on your faith, the more clearer he becomes in your life. Right? The Christian life is empowered by the clear vision of Christ as we live our daily lives. And as we see Jesus more clearly, the everyday reality of our lives we begin to see it in a more clear way. I'll give you an example. So don't tell my wife this, okay? Shh. Right? But, you know, I'm going to tell a lot of family secrets here today. You love that, right? The Lord is doing something great in my wife's life right now. I think she fell through a YouTube rabbit hole, and she found this, like, Christian businesswoman in Korea who's leading Bible study, and the Lord switched the light on my wife. And the, she is now into the word, right? So that she asks me questions all the time. Our date nights is about Bible study. Our date nights, we go out, and she asks me Bible questions. She's so lucky to be married to a pastor, yeah? But what I observed as my wife has a clear view of Christ through the word of God, the way she deals with my daughter starts to change. Don't tell my wife this, but oftentimes, there's usually peace in my household, but there is a moment of conflict, and that conflict is when my daughter practices the violin. My wife has perfect ears. My daughter, right, she wants to play the way she wants to play. My wife is, very, is a perfectionist in terms of having my daughter play violin, and oftentimes they clash. 
they had a major clash this past week. All they want to do is work, and I got to hear all the drama in the background. But I realized that as my wife is going, getting more into the word, as my wife is seeing Jesus Christ more clearly, the way she's dealing with my daughter starts to change. Even though they may have conflicts, my wife is now more self-aware. And she goes to my daughter and apologizes, which never happened before. You could see subtle changes in my wife's attitude towards things. As Jesus Christ becomes more clear in her mind. That's, I think, how the Christian life is supposed to work. Through these sermons, especially through the Bible, it is only through the Word of God that you become you have a crystal clear view of who He is. If He is still very far away and distant and hazy, and if you are still dominated by all, primarily what a per, what happens to you in your daily everyday life. If you're dominated primarily about what you're lacking, if you're dominated primarily about everyday living things and having and Christ is invisible, then I'm afraid you cannot withstand the trials of this life. The only way you can withstand the trials of this life is through a crystal view of Jesus Christ. ¿La comprende? That's what a Christian life is. One of the reasons why I went to seminary, I'll tell you, is because I was under the teaching of some pastor dude. And this pastor dude, what I realized, the reason why I went to seminary was, this pastor dude, I, despite his best intentions, under his ministry, all I saw was what I need to do for God. All I saw is what, it's, it's the sacrifices I need, I, need, I need to make for God, you know, the lack of sleep I need to make for God, things that I need to sacrifice for God. Under this dude's leadership, maybe this wasn't his intent, but under this dude's leadership, that's all I saw when I was a young man, things I needed to do for Christ. And maybe there's some of you who feel that way this morning. Maybe your Christianity is primarily about things you need to do for Christ. You need to pray more. You need to do small group more. You need to do Bible study more. You have all this laundry list of what you need to do for Christ, and you think that's your Christianity. It's not. The primary function and goal of Christianity is to see Jesus Christ more and more clearly in your life. God uses the sermons, God uses the church, God uses the Bible, God uses prayers to have you see Christ more clearly. That's what he's interested in. More so than you doing things for his name. More so than you sacrificing things for his name. To have a clear view of Jesus Christ. That's the reason why Paul wrote the book of Colossians. Because the book, people in the book of Colossians, they were all about sacrificing themselves for Christ. They thought if I need to, if I'm a Christian, I need to be more strict about what I do. And which is certainly true. You need to be more mindful of how you live in this life. But the problem with Colossians is they were primarily only focused on what they need to do for God. Christ wrote Colossians to give them a clear view of Christ. 
Because it is, because in Paul's mind, having a clear view of Christ is what leads to true godly living. Guys, what is your Christianity about? I know we're Koreans and we're performance-based, and I know we think we got to do better and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, okay. But besides that, the question, the real question is, how clear do you see Jesus Christ in your everyday life? How much do you think about him? How much does he influence the way you behave, the way you work? How much of he, how much of him is, is he adjusting your hope for the future? How much is his view affecting your life? I can go on and on, but it's going to snow, so we got we to move on. This is especially true, J- James says. Having a clear view of Christ is especially relevant when you suffer. James's main point in chapter 5 is, number one, you're going to suffer. Once again, last week's main, one of the last week's main point was this world, as glorious as it is, is fundamentally a dis, disjointed, disjuncted, disorderly, you know, dystopian place. I know so many D words. This world is not as glorious as it is. It is primarily, biblically speaking, it is primarily a fallen place filled with fallen people and fallen spirits. And therefore, this world and the condition of this this world and the condition of your heart and the people in your life, you're supposed to suffer. Not supposed. What's a better word? The reality is, living in this fallen world, we will suffer. It's a natural part of living in this fallen world. But the only way that you can endure the sufferings of this world is having a clear view of Jesus Christ. This is what James is telling his Christian brothers. Let's review what these Christian brothers are going through. They are going through various suppressions and oppressions. Right? People are not leaving them alone. People are just dominating them. On one hand, there is the Jewish leaders and the Jewish community. These Christians that James is writing to, once again, were Jews, were former Jews. And now they declared publicly that they're following Jesus Christ. The Jewish community led by these Jewish leaders are not leaving them alone. They are ostracized by their community. Think about a Korean who's in Northern Virginia who's ostracized by the Centerville and Annandale community. Can you believe that? Not only that, these Jewish leaders are making, are making these Christian lives incredibly difficult. But not only are they being persecuted by their community, a lot of these workers that James is writing to, they're day laborers. And these day laborers are being oppressed by their rich, rich, rich bosses. 
These rich bosses are living off the fruit of their labor, the fruit of the labor of these workers. And yet, rather than treating these workers fairly by giving them proper wages, they're withholding these wages. These guys are working their butts off, and yet they're not getting paid. Because the, because the, because the, the, the rich people are abusing them. Let's understand the reality of where they are. The oppression from the Jewish community, the oppression from the rich people, it's not a temporary thing as they live in this world. The suffering that they go through most likely will not end during the course of their lifetime. Most of us think that if we suffer in this world, that eventually in this world there's going to be a happy ending that there's somehow going to be a resolution in this world. No, there isn't. A lot of these guys, they remained and they died in an oppressed state. Let's have a clear understanding of this world. This world will never give you a happy ending. Unless Jesus comes back, this world will continually be a fallen, oppressive, sinful place. And we will die under its oppression. James clearly knows. James is not a James is not a Joe Walstein. James is not a prosperity gospel guy. James is not saying if you're remaining faithful to the to God right now, then he's going to make your lives better in this world. James never promises that. If you're thinking that just because you're a Christian, that, that, that God's going to make your life better in this world for you? I don't think that's biblical. That's certainly not what James is telling you. If you believe in Jesus Christ so that you will have a more blessed, pros- prosperous life in this world, James chapter 5 is contradicting that. Let's be grown-ups here, people. The world is full of suffering. Maybe you will never get what you want, right? For some of you single brothers, maybe you will never get married. For, for, for the guys who are working in big firms, maybe you'll never make partner. For those of us who are, who, are, who are running businesses, maybe your business will not prosper. Maybe your business will always be that size. Maybe it will always be that way. That's a hard truth, isn't it? That's the reality of where we are. But James is saying, in the midst of these sufferings, we need to be steadfast. There's a way of enduring suffering in this fallen world. And the only way that you can endure suffering in this world is having a clearer view of Jesus Christ. Specifically, James is saying, my brothers who are being oppressed, the only way that you can survive the oppression in this world is to have a certain view of the coming of the day of the Lord. He's saying, brothers, even though your life in this world, in this time, it's, it's full of torment and suffering, the torment and suffering will end. When? When Christ returns, 
for the Christian, our hope is not tied to a, a, a cushy retirement plan. For the Christian, our hope is not to become successful in this world. It's not. For the Christian, our hope is solely tied to the returning of our king. Because it is only when the king returns, things will find their proper place. Things will become orderly again. Things will become glorious again. Things will become healed again. Give an example. The Omnicon variant has everyone being so afraid. Not only Omnicon variant, since COVID, everyone's wondering, when will life become normal again, right? For the last two years, the thing that are on our mind is, when will it become normal again? We yearn for a pre-COVID existence, a, a world where we are COVID-free, where things will return again, right? We all feel it every day, right? But let's be real. Even if COVID goes away, there's still diseases. There's still murders. There's still deaths, right? There's still sin in the world. Maybe we will be free from COVID, but we won't be free from the fallenness of the world. People yearn for a world that is free of COVID. I think that, that real yearning is we yearn for a world where we don't have diseases and sickness and sin anymore. All of us yearn for that. COVID has taught us we all yearn for that kind of a world. Christians know that world will come and it will come when Christ returns. The world right now is a disaster, disorderly, disorganized mess. But the return of Christ means he will set the disorder creation back into its orderly form again. He will recreate the world so that the world will become the glorious, orderly place that God has intended it to be. Look, Luke chapter 8 and 9, like I said, I'm meditating upon this week. It shows the miracles of Jesus. Jesus healing the blind. Jesus driving out evil spirits. Jesus cleaning the leopard. Jesus raising, resurrecting a dead child. One of the main purposes Jesus, of why Jesus performed these miracles is to give us a preview of what the world that he will bring will be, will be like. One of the main reasons why Jesus performed the miracles is to show us that when he ushers in the new kingdom, the new world, world there, will not, there will be no more blindness, there will, no be, there will be no more lepers, there will, no, there will be no more deaths, there will, no, there will no, no longer be evil spirits. It's a world that will return to its glorious place. We hope for that world. And we know that world is coming when Christ returns. James is telling his Christian brothers, focus on that day. Focus on that day is coming. That day is really coming. Focus on that day. Look, did I tell you about a few years ago? I had a friend who's in relation with this guy. And this guy is obsessed with retiring when he's 40. He had a clear view of what he will do 
how much money he will need to retire when he's 40. So he has a clear end date of his retirement. And he's in his early 20s now. So the way he spends his money is he saves everything because he knows when he's 40, he's retiring. So his financial decisions are motivated by his view of a clear, certain view of his retirement when he's 40. No, Valentine, no fancy Valentine's Day dinner for this guy. Domino's pizza, two for, one, two, one, two for one special. Happy Valentine's Day, baby. Domino's pizza. No Birkin bag for this guy. Domino's pizza. No movie theaters for this guy. No Netflix for this guy. Books. Can you imagine that? No Netflix books. Why? Solely motivated because he has a clear view of what he will do when he's 40. Similarly, James is saying, be motivated by a clear view of the coming of the Lord. Jesus Christ will not only set the disordered creation back to its orderly state when he returns, Jesus Christ will create a new humanity. Human beings, as gloriously created they are, we are also horrible, sinful, destructive sin machines. But when Christ returns, he will create himself a new humanity. A new humanity that is, that, that, that is made up of people who have been raised, whose body, whose body has, will be raised to a resurrected form. Remember, when Jesus Christ comes back, those who have died in the world before his return, their bodies will be raised up and they will be given new resurrected bodies. The new humanity that Jesus Christ will make is made up of people with glorified bodies. For those of us who are alive, when Christ returns, we too will be raised up. Our bodies will too be transformed to a glorious body. And that is the certain hope that the Christian faith is based in. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is about. When Christ returns, he will create himself a new people with a raised body. Look, I kind of I have a little idea what this is like after I was recovering from COVID. Right? Look, I had COVID, no secret, a month ago. Has it been a month already? Yeah, a month. Exactly a month I had COVID. It was, you know, I was sick. Right? But then as I was recovering, as the symptoms subsided, and as I, my body began to recover, I felt great. As the symptoms subsided, I started to feel not just healthy, I felt great. I felt rejuvenated. I felt that my body got a car wash or something. Recovering from that sickness, made my body, I can feel my body becoming stronger, and I felt rejuvenated. I think that's a small example of what we will be when Christ returns. This body and soul that is being, the, the body that's being decayed will be rejuvenated and will become alive, more alive than we have possibly ever known. That day is coming when Christ returns. Your bodies will be raised new, will be raised new when Christ returns. That's how we, how we create a new humanity. 
He will create a new humanity, not only by raising people, but he will create a new humanity by judging those who do not believe in him. God will ex- when Christ returns, God will exercise his judgment against people who have, who have denied him, who remain people of darkness, who remain enemies of God. Jesus Christ will come and judge those, those, those people who have rejected him, those people who have not been born again. It is clear. That's what Acts 17, verse 31, it says, God has appointed a day when Jesus will judge everyone in righteousness. Isaiah 13, 11, thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their inequity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the, pr- arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. When Christ returns, those who are proud, those who are arrogant, those who are evil, those who deny the reality of God, God will judge them in righteousness, in fairness, in equity. God will judge them. So he's saying to the, 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 the brothers that he's writing to, brothers, when Christ returns, the rich oppressors who are judging you, God will judge them. They may seem to have an upper hand in your life right now. They may seem to dominate your life right now. They may seem to cause you much pain right now, brothers. But he's saying, brothers, when Christ returns, these people will be judged. Let them have their happy days here. Let them live in luxury here right now. Let them live in luxury and everything right now. Because one day, their riches will condemn them. God will condemn them. I think it's Romans chapter 4 when, God said, when Paul says, do not repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. And if you look at it, he's saying, you're able to do that. You repay evil with good. You're, you're, you can, we are able to love our enemies because Paul is saying, because God is the avenger. He is the one who's going to judge those people, your enemies. He's going to judge the wicked. So we don't, have to, we don't have to be Batman. We don't have to avenge ourselves. We don't have to take revenge on ourselves. We can love, love our enemies because God will avenge for us. When the Lord returns, the enemies of God will be judged. Their destinies, James is saying, it's not forever prosperity but condemnation and judgment. The more they see this world clearly, the more they can endure the suffering of this world. You understand? If you think this world is all you have, and you have to feel as much happiness and success and love in this world as much as possible, you'd be sorely disappointed. Because this world is never meant 
for you to fill your lives with all the happiness and all the purpose and all the success of life. This world is, this is not for that. This world is not made for that. The world that is made for your glory is the world that that, that Jesus Christ will bring. You need to have a certain clear vision of that day. James is saying that day is absolutely coming. How do you know? What he says in verse 8. I'm sorry, continue verse 7. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the earth early in the late rains. Once again, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You go, what in the world is he talking about? The way farming works in, in, in James's time back then, this is how farming works in Palestine. You plant in the fall over there. You don't plant in the spring. You plant in the fall in Palestine. After you plant your crops in the fall, late rains come, right? That's what he says. Like, like, so, so early, rain, early rain comes. So when you plant the thing in season Palestine, early rain means rain that falls in March or November. When the rain falls in March or November, right, crops starts to grow. And then the late rains come in March or April, right? So the early rain comes and the late rain comes. And when these two rains come, that's how a farmer knows that the crops will grow. So what James is saying in verse 7 here means, he means farmers. Farmers know that their crops will grow because they know that the early rain and the late rain will come. Likewise, Christians, it is certain that Christ will, will, will come back. Just as a farmer is certain that, it, that, the, that, his, that his field will receive the early rain and late rain, just as he is absolutely certain that these rains will come and the crops will grow, be certain that Jesus Christ will come back. You need to be absolutely certain that he's coming back. Otherwise, you will not be able to endure the suffering of this world. I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of months ago, and he was, he was interviewing 100-mile ultramarathon runners. For whatever reason that, that motivates these people, these people just run 100 miles. Day and night, they just run, 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 right? And they, and they describe what their body becomes as they run 100 miles. They say, you know, they lose, they start, their, their fingernail starts coming off and their toenail starts coming off because of the moisture, right? They start to become blind, right? For whatever reason, they start to become blind, right? And, and as they're running, there's tremendous suffering. They endure as they run. But the question is, how do they keep on running if they're suffering like that? The secret is they run because they know after 100 miles, the, 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 the race will end. They can endure so much suffering in the midst of the 100-mile run because there is an end date to their running, right? Waiting for them is a nice bath, nice hearty car-filled meal, you know, everything they want to eat, it's waiting for them. Most importantly, glory is waiting for them. Recognition is waiting for them at the end. 
So they run. There is an end date to our suffering in this world. That end date is not a retirement in Florida. The end date is when Christ returns. James is saying that day is certainly coming. Verse 8, therefore, Paul says, you need to be established. When you're suffering in this world, you need to be established. When people are oppressing you, when you are receiving unfair treatment, when you're having a failing body, when your kids don't listen to you, when your business is falling apart, all these things that trials give you in the midst of that suffering, what you need to do is establish your heart. Establish your heart here means, in verse 8, make your heart strong. There are a lot of things that this, this fallen world throw at you. Therefore, it is vitally important that you make your heart strong. How does one make one's heart strong? By having a clear view of Jesus Christ. How do you have a clear view of Jesus Christ? That's where we, we, we go back to what, what I said before. How do you have a clear view of Jesus Christ? Primarily through his word. It's primarily through his word. It is not through my clever stories. It's not through my clever experiences. Primarily through the word of God. That you have a clear view of Jesus Christ. Look, back to my wife. Don't tell her this, right? I'm my wife was raised in the church all her life. For the past 50 years, she was raised in the church. She thought she knew what the Bible said. She went to seminary for crying out loud. She knew, she thought she knew what the Bible had to say. How do I know? Every time I try to teach her in the past, she says, I know, I know, I know, right? But she's actually starting to read the Bible. You know what happened? She began to know, I didn't know this. She realized, despite being a Christian for 50 years, and despite thinking she knew the Bible for 50 years, she really didn't. Maybe you don't, you don't read the Bible because you think you know what it says. With all due respect, I don't think you know what you're talking about. I don't think you guys know what the Bible really says. How do I know? Because it's still new to me every day, and I'm, I'm doing this professionally, right? Dude, all, my daughter knows my YouTube channels are primarily about two things, Korean drama and sermons. That's all I, that's all I listen to, Korean dramas or sermons. And I've been doing this. I've been reading books and I've been studying sermons for the past 25 years. And when I open up the Bible to a passage of Luke, it's still new. I didn't know it was there. Guys, it's always new. What it reveals about God is always new. Do not be arrogant to know you think you know what is in there. I'm sorry, you don't. Therefore, and the reason I'm telling you is not to condemn you, but I'm telling you, you don't know what it means. Therefore, go study what it says. Actually open up a passage, actually dissecting a passage, and study what it says about God. When you do that, Jesus Christ will become more clear to you. That is the only way he'll become more clear to you. Primarily through his word. 
It, Jesus came here, he taught more than he did miracles. Why? Because he knew it is through the word of God, the proper handling of the word of God, that makes you see him clearly. You cannot endure the suffering of this world without having a clear view of Christ. And that clear view of Christ, the way your heart becomes strong, it is through the word of God, letting the word of God influence you. My favorite guy in the YouTube channel, Beckett Cook, he had a Q&A session yesterday. And one of the questions that the listener asked him was, Beckett Cook, you were once a homosexual. Do you sometimes, does, do the urges still come back? And he was on, he says, yeah, occasionally those urges do come back in a flash. What do I do? I go to the Bible. I ask God to comfort me through the word. And he says, when those urges come, I open up the Bible and I pray. And when Christ becomes more clear, more real, those desires flee. Right? That's how you're, that's how you're supposed to do it. Don't be arrogant enough to think that you know what the Bible has to say. You do not. With humility, go to God and say, I don't know what this passage means, but let me know you through the passage. That has to be your daily attitude. That's how you strengthen your heart. In times of stress and sorrow and suffering, that is what, what, what James is calling his readers to do. Strengthen your heart by having a clear view of, view of Jesus Christ. You know what happens to you when you suffer and you don't have a clear view of Jesus Christ? You start to complain about people. You start to blame other people. That's what verse 9 is about. Do not grumble against one another, brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 9, once again, do not grumble against one another. The word grumble here means complain, blame someone. Why is this verse in the middle of a verse that he's talking about suffering? Because James knows when you're suffering, and when, 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 you, when you don't see Christ in the midst of your suffering, the natural human reaction is to blame someone else. You notice that? When you're suffering, you, you want a scapegoat, and you want to peg all your suffering on that particular person. This has happened in human history over and over and over again. World War II, why was Hitler able to get the whole entire German nation to persecute the Jews? Because Hitler says all of Germany's problems, all of Germany's financial problems can be blamed on one group of people, that's the Jews. People start to blame their misery on the Jews. You don't think that's happening in America? Who's at fault for every injustice, every suffering, every economic, you know, disorganization in America. Who is, whose fault is it, guys? The white men are the fault, are the, are the problem, isn't it? It's the white men that's the root cause of all the evil in American society. Is that true? Your life stinks because of the white man? I mean, clearly the system's messed up, and clearly the people who run the system tend to be white, right, and male, right? That's true. But white men are the, are the cause of all the injustice of the world? When Donald Trump was president, 
the liberal media would like, like, went crazy. They thought Donald Trump was Satan. And Donald Trump was to be blamed for every sin that America has ever caused. Really, Donald Trump? That's what people do. We blame each other when we suffer. It's someone else's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my mom's fault. It's my brother's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's someone else's fault for your suffering. And you become grumble. And James is saying, don't grumble. Don't complain. Especially don't blame each other for your suffering. Why is he saying this? I think he's saying this because a lot of the workers in James's church were day laborers, but there are also rich people in the church. And when you're a poor person being oppressed in society, you tend to get bitter against the rich. So maybe the poor Christians are tempted to blame the rich Christians in the church. When you don't see Christ clearly, you want someone to blame. James is saying, do not blame, especially a fellow Christian. Because if you blame, if you abuse a fellow Christian, God will judge you. Verse 9, once again, very clear, James is saying, the way you treat another Christian is of paramount importance. God will judge you, especially for the way you thought about and you judge your fellow believers in the church. I know because we're human, we have opinions about people in the church. It may or may, may, or may not be justified how you feel about that person. But James is very clear. Jesus Christ is at the door, and he will judge you for all the judgments that you pass on another Christian. When he returns, when the judge Jesus Christ returns, he will reveal what, how you have treated other Christians. And that can be a source of condemnation for us. When you don't see Christ clearly, you begin to blame someone. You begin to become angry at someone. And that is a great sin, Paul said, James says. Don't do it. Strengthen your heart by having a clear view of Jesus Christ. And the two examples that James gives in verses 10 and 11. I'm very impressed of how fast I'm going with these verses. Verse 10, he says, rather than blaming people, set and establish your heart, the examples you should follow is number one, the prophets of the Old Testament, and number two, Job. Let's talk about the prophets. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. The prophets that James is talking about is the prophets of the Old Testament, right? These are people that God chose to speak his word to his people Israel. God chose these men to reveal his word to God's people Israel. How did Israel treat these prophets? They insulted them. They imprisoned them. They threw rocks at them. And some of them, and, and they killed some of them. The people that God chose in this world as his prophets are perhaps the people who suffered the most in this world. 
Once again, this verse contradicts Joe Austin's mentality that if you're a Christian, God's going to make everything better for you in this world. It's not true. The prophets suffered much for doing the work of the Lord. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He wept for his people Israel. He wept because he suffered much. What happened to Jeremiah? What happened to Jeremiah? People, people threw lies about him, right? The Jewish priest leaders beat him. He was, they sentenced him to death. They threw him in a cistern and left him for dead. You know what a cistern is? A cistern is a deep well that you gather rainwater. They threw Jeremiah in the deep hole and left him for dead. Once again, these are people called by God in this world to do his will, and they were mistreated and beaten, and they suffered. And the question is, how was people like Jeremiah able to endure the suffering? They were able to endure the suffering, once again, because they had a clear view of God's redemptive plan. Even though these people were beating him up and killing him, Jeremiah knew eventually God is going to redeem his people, Israel. Jeremiah had a clear view of the plan of God and the work of God. And that clear view allowed him to endure all the sufferings of this life that they were giving him. Once again, how do you endure the suffering of your world? By having a clear view of Jesus Christ in your life. Another example is he gives the example of Job. Job equals suffering in the Bible, basically. Job, no, there's no one who suffered more than Job besides Jesus Christ. Job lost his health. Job lost his wealth. Job lost his kids. Job lost his wife. Job lost everything. But he endured his suffering. Right? That's what, that's what he's saying, verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job was faithful in his suffering. That's what James is saying. He lost everything, right? His marriage, his kids, his wealth, his name, everything. Picture Job in the ruins of his former house. Boils on top of his, like all over his body. Taking a glad clay, clay, like a pick of clay jar, just scratching his boils and bleeding. In the midst of that suffering, Job was steadfast to God. It doesn't mean that Job did not complain. If you read Job, Job complained to God. Job, Job is not like, oh, I will take it. It's like that. Job was very expressive about his complaint against the Lord. He says, why is this happening to me? Then the question is, how was Job to find someone who's faithful, even though he's suffering, even though he's complaining? Job was considered faithful to God, even in the midst of his complaining, because Job never lost sight of God. He was still suffering under the reality of who God was. 
He may not know who God was. He may not know exactly what he was going through. But Job knew that God existed. And even his complaint was directed at the God that Job knew was real. Job was still loyal to God in his suffering. Yes, he suffered. He wanted to know why. Yes, he was complaining. But Job never lost sight of the reality of God. That's what made Job faithful. Do you suffer? Of course. Will you suffer? I'm sorry, but you will. Even though you may complain, being faithful to God means still suffering and complaining under the awareness that God is, that God is real. James saying in verse, verse 11, the Lord was compassionate and merciful to Job. Even in the midst of Job's suffering, the Lord was compassionate and merciful to Job. How was God merciful to Job, compassionate to Job? Job wanted to know why he was suffering. In chapter 38 to 42 of Job, God shows up and God reveals himself to Job. God doesn't say, Job, this is why you had to suffer. No. God reveals himself, his glory, his sovereignty to Job. And when the sovereignty of God is revealed in Job, that comforts Job. In fact, when the sovereignty of God was revealed as Job was suffering, as Job realized the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering, Job ends up praising God for his suffering. The compassion and mercy of God is this. When you suffer and when you ask him, he will reveal himself to you. He will reveal himself to you. God is compassionate and merciful when you suffer. His compassion and mercy may not mean that he will take away the pain. No, but maybe, especially his compassion and mercy means when you suffer, when you ask him, he will reveal himself to you. Do you understand? His compassion and mercy in the midst of suffering is a revelation of who he is to you. I'm here as a living testimony. It is when I suffered the most that God became more crystal clear in my mind. The reason I can stand here passionately talking to you about God is because when I suffered, he appeared and he became real to me. When I suffer, the sermons become more real. The Bible becomes more real. Prayer becomes more real. There's never been a place where God did not reveal himself to me, especially when I suffered. The compassion and mercy of God when you're suffering, it's not the end of your suffering. It is a revelation of Christ in the midst of your suffering. I don't know why he does it, but C.S. Lewis says when you suffer, God speaks at you like with, with, a, with, a, with a microphone. He yells at you. He screams at you to know who he is. Are you suffering right now? For whatever reason you're suffering, I don't know what it is. Consider it a gift where God can reveal himself to you. My little brother is suffering a lot right now. He's suffering a lot. I told some of you that. He's really suffering. And I told my little brother this. Maybe, he got, no, not maybe, God is allowing you to go through the suffering because he, you, he wants to know, he wants to reveal himself to you through his word. Little brother, read the word. Ask God to let you know who he is. Maybe your suffering will not end. But little brother, God will reveal himself to you. Do you understand? 
The compassion and mercy of God in the suffering is his revelation to you. At the end of Job, Job also gets twice as what he lost, right? After God reveals himself to him at, at the end of Job's life, he had twice as, twice as more children, twice as more property, twice as more fame. Job's life became glorious. That riches that Job experienced points to the riches that you and I will experience when Christ returns. When Christ returns, we will inherit the earth. We will be rich and blessed beyond measure. That's true. Those who suffered well with the Lord in this world, God will reveal, God will provide much treasure and much reward. And that's what Paul is saying in, 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 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He's saying, we're suffering right now, but God is going to use his suffering to give, us, to give us glory that is worth all these things that we're going through. God's mercy is not only he reveals himself to you as you suffer, but if you suffer well, there is a, there is a glory waiting for you when he returns. That's how you need to see your suffering. Suffering as a means to know, to have a clear view of Christ. Suffering as a means where you will get the glory after Christ comes back. That's how you, that's how you to see this life. Forget about this life as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a means to an end, as a place of glory and comfort and riches and beauty. Forget all that. True riches and beauty and glory come when he returns. James is saying, focus on that day. Suffering Christians, strengthen your heart by focusing on Christ in this day. Strengthen your heart by focusing on the glory that is waiting for you. That's, these things have to be always on your mind as you live in this world so that you will live properly in this world. I pray that that view of Christ will be clear in your mind so that you will not waste your life here. Wasting your life here means living only for the things of this life. That is wasting your life here. Wasting your life is living solely for your comfort and your glory and your love in this life. That's wasting your life. Focus on the life to come. Focus on God. Let's pray. Father, you have made it clear through your word that our lives, the purpose of our lives here is to see Jesus Christ more clearly. Perhaps as we talked about today, all of us assume that we know you, but in reality that we have a very hazy idea of who you are. We think we know the Bible. We think we know about Jesus Christ. But Lord, reality, Father, we don't really know. And the evidence of our, of our ignorance comes from the fact, the way we live our lives, Lord. We cannot say that we know you and our lives are still full of bitterness and anxiousness and complaining and sin. 
We cannot say that we know you if we're primarily still living for our name, our comfort, our recognition in this world. We cannot say that we know you, Father, if our primary view of life is to make our families happy and successful. When we know you, Lord, when we see you, we see this world and our lives for what it is, what they are. It is our prayer that you make all of us have a more and more crystal clear view of Jesus Christ. Forgive us of our arrogance of thinking that we know you, even though we don't. Humble us to know, Lord, that we don't know you, and may that humility drives us to seek after you through your word. As we study your word, may your Holy Spirit make Jesus Christ more clear to us. And as you become more clear to us, Give us proper perspective, once again, of our sufferings. Give us proper perspective of our mission in this world. And give us proper perspective of our eternal destiny. We need to have a clear view of our eternal destiny to, to have a realistic view of what this life is. People who don't know the eternal destiny tend to get obsessed with what they live, tend to get obsessed with their, with their, their lives here. Expand our view of reality so that we will know who you are. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray.